847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, uh, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's career, or by way of interviews with guests, uh, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. On this week's episode, I have a guest. I'm talking with composer and musician Edwin Windler. Uh, who I wanted to have on the show to share his background and experiences in the industry writing music for film and television. Welcome, Edwin. Thank you so much for having me. So can you talk a little bit uh, about your your background first? Yeah, I come from a musical family. Um, my Both my mom and my dad um, worked in music. Mm-hmm. So my dad was actually working at the Vienna State Opera, you know, one of the busiest opera houses in the world, one of the most prestigious places to do opera in. And but it, it was just it was very workmanlike. You know, he, he left in the morning, he went to rehearsals, he came back in the evenings and, and uh, oftentimes he would be gone in the evenings because there were performances. Huh. Uh, so I didn't see a whole lot of my dad growing up, oh, um, but it was a great job. And, and uh, like I would sometimes visit him at the Vienna State Opera. And um, so he was a, a comprimario tenor, meaning that he performed in small tenor parts you know, like first slave, you know, second assistant, <laughs> that mm-hmm. sort of uh, part. And uh, he was also assistant director, which was very interesting. And he even wrote uh, uh, some of the programs. You know, when you go in, you buy a program, you read my father's work, which is also interesting because my dad had a background in journalism. And my mom uh, was originally from Japan and uh, she studied singing at Rutgers University. Uh, where her teacher told her, hey, I know this vocal coach, this vocal teacher in Vienna. If you want to take singing seriously, I can recommend you to that teacher. And so that's why she moved to Vienna. And that's where she met my dad at the Vienna State Opera. Wow. Um, She wanted to audition for the Vienna State Opera Choir. She came in on the wrong date and was wandering around aimlessly and ran into my dad who helped her uh, get an appointment. And that's how they first met. Real star-crossed. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, and so I grew up with classical music, but my dad also had a small film music collection. You know, the stuff that everybody bought at the time, like Star Wars, Superman, E.T., that sort of thing. Um, And so I started listening and uh, it was just a magical listening experience, especially, you know, then also watching the movies, you know, I would connect the music and the power of the music to the images. And uh, it, it was something that really left an impression with me. Um, but the, the key experience for me was probably, um, well, other than um, watching Chitty Chitty Bang Bang when it was too small to remember, my parents told me that when we got home, I was, you know, singing and dancing and reenacting scenes from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, but I don't remember that. But the, the incident that I do remember <laughs> is when my parents took me to see Krull in 1985. Oh, my. And in this, you know, big premiere movie theater in Vienna, I saw this movie and as you know, the, the score isn't, on, isn't only brilliant, but it's also mixed in at a level so you can actually hear it really well. Yeah, it's, so, that's um, a great one for sure. Yes, oh yes. My gosh. So I, I could not get that music out of my head. Wow. And, and I, I remember thinking at the time, you know, if, if I could spend the rest of my life kind of feeling that same way, huh. that would be pretty awesome. So I guess that's what drew me to pursuing film music as a career. And that... Uh, as far as the example of Kroll, is a score by James Horner. Yes. So once you kind of um, made that connection of you know this person who did the music for Kroll, I mean, did you find yourself seeking out his work, or was it I'm going to seek out other things that are genre related, like other sci-fi fantasy, or, or um, how, how did that? How did they? That's a great question. Well, at the time, I was familiar with John Williams, obviously, mm-hmm. because of. Uh, because of uh, Star Wars and uh, Superman and Indiana Jones. And um, at the time, I remember my mom uh, rented Raiders of the Lost Ark um, because she was working at the United Nations. She had stopped being a musician because she's like, okay, 
I'll be the one member of this family who has a like a nine to five regular job. <laughs> so um, and at the United Nations, uh, where she worked in Vienna, they had a video rental place uh, for movies in, in English, in the original huh. language, you know, not the German dubbed versions. So I watched Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark specifically, and my mom uh, has perfect pitch so she could actually remember what pitch that melody started on wow. so she was singing it before i heard it for the first time wow. in, the, in the context of the movie um and that that was that was amazing that's incredible um, yeah now this was all around the same time all around the same time but but yes i you were in of your course teens I, or uh... i was in my early teens okay. yes and i um so I specifically, uh, you know, looked for that name, John Williams. And of course, Krull made me also look for James Horner. Yeah. And uh, among the movies that I asked my mom to rent from the video rental place at the United Nations was Battle Beyond the Stars. Oh, right. And like the first seconds of the main title, I'm like, this sounds like it could be the same person who did Krull. And sure enough, the name James Horner appeared. That's incredible. Um, so I was able to recognize some of the, you know, styles that these composers had. And, you know, we often hear that Star Wars was very influential and that it influenced all these other composers, including uh, Craig Safin for The Last Starfighter, many other scores. Um, and they're sometimes called copycats or something like that, which I don't think is fair because they, while they do adopt the style, I think these composers did put their personal imprint uh, on these movies. Completely. Yeah. It's just, you know, if you, if at that time with the... You know, once uh, Star Wars changed the sound of science fiction uh, in 77, because it hadn't been that really previously, once it changed it, that just became the model. I, I don't think it's different than what happened with Westerns um, at a certain exactly, point. And it's exactly. like, well, you can still work within that um, landscape, but you can still kind of make your own, you know, you can still add your own colors to it. Yes. Um, and also, as we know, you know, Star Wars also came from the rich tradition of, you know, symphonic European music. And then also the early film composers, Max Steiner and Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Yeah. Um, you know, while being very originally John Williams at the same time. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's funny because it is a benchmark for the genre and for movies, you know, mm -hmm. but its own it is also steeped in a tradition that already existed yes um so it it didn't come completely out of whole cloth um so yeah i think there's still a lot of great things about that era because of so much of that genre was being produced and they all needed music so a lot of guys that didn't normally score for that genre like craig safan were asked to score for that or yes. Morricone or marie char right or dave grusen for um yeah. Goonies. Yeah. Yeah. That I was mean, an interesting choice. I think almost everybody, Bill Conti got, you know, yes. Masters of the Universe. And it's like everybody got a chance to score a science fiction or fantasy yeah. epic, I think. And yeah. I love that's one of the reasons why I think that era is so rich. And so many of us of our, you know, age group kind of became fans at that time. Yes. And I also loved uh, Alex North's Dragon Slayer oh at the gosh. time, which is a really, yeah. uh, you know, to some people, I guess it's too complex and dense. But uh, I just loved the music the, the first time I heard it, which was in the context of the movie. Same. Um, I Same. saw it in a theater with like 10 other people. <laughs> you know, the movie did not have a huge opening in Austria. Um, <laughs> but I, I really loved that music. Um, it, it, it was so unorthodox. You know, it, it's yeah. not what you were used to hearing in the context of a, of a fantasy yeah. uh, type of movie. Yeah. And so when you decided to start writing, um, when you started, to, to, you know, in terms of like, um, wanting to compose music was there any sort of model that you were following as far as a compositional style or was it more like as a career I want a career like this guy but I still have my own style well my, my early beginnings uh, of composition were um, imitation and something that grew out of that so as soon as I got like my first keyboard, um, I, I started imitating other scores. Like, uh, you know, even the, the uh, a score by Jerry Goldsmith that not many people like, but that has a really catchy main theme, which is Mr. Baseball. I did a version of that on my keyboard. <laughs> I did a version of uh, Alan Silvestri's Shattered main title. Um, I, I did, know. of course, the Halloween theme, yeah. um, John Carpenter. Uh, you know, and, and this very repetitive, uh, you know, figure <laughs> in the piano. Um, 
And so it, 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 it taught me about the components of, of film music, basically, you know, how the melodies interact with the harmonies, accompaniment, rhythm, that sort of thing. Um, and then I tried scoring um, the China Syndrome, which, as you probably know, does not have a score, even though one was written for it and then thrown out. Yeah. Michael Small. Michael Small. But um, yeah, so I, you know, that was the only movie I knew um, that did not have a score. Um, what an so incredible I, idea yeah. for a blank canvas. Yes. You get a finished movie yeah, that so doesn't have anything in it as a finished theatrical release. So I wrote a very Horner-esque score for it. Um, only for like three scenes or something like that. And of course, at the time, I didn't have the technical means to synchronize music to picture. So I would have to like, you know, play the VHS every time I would write <laughs> and then rewind it. And, uh, and that, that was, viola. yeah, that was not a very efficient way to sync music to picture. But uh, yeah, that, that was my beginning. So, wow. but in terms of career, like um, at the time, I wasn't really thinking about whose career I, I would like to emulate. Um, it was it was just about being passionate about film music and trying to see if I had a voice, you know, something to contribute. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the time, as I mentioned, I was living in Vienna, Austria, where the film music business is is very confined, um, mostly to projects that are government funded, and uh, the government's guidelines are to fund projects that have no uh, commercial ambitions meaning it has to be something that's artistic. So uh, the, the kind of movies that mostly come out of Austria, while very interesting, are just not commercial by nature, by definition, by design. Huh. Um, so I was just not very interested in, in working in Austria, although I tried and I sent out demo tapes at the time, which were rejected left and right, of course. Um, so I figured it, it would make more sense to come uh, here to L.A. Uh, initially to study film music, which I did at UCLA Extension, uh, which has a fantastic program. And uh, at the time I had teachers like uh, Robert Drasnan and uh, oh, yeah. Gerald Freed, wow. um, who was a wonderful, absolutely wonderful teacher. And he's um, still around, which is also amazing. Yes, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and uh, just a really, really nice guy. And uh, his, his lessons were so valuable. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I still use what he taught us pretty much on every project. And, Not, for, and for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, Gerald Fried, I mean, uh, tons of TV work and film work, yes. um, but, but, you know, very well known for his music for the original Star Trek, Star Trek TV yes. series. Yeah, I mean... Yes. It's, it's not often that you write a piece of music that's not a theme, mm -hmm. but a piece of incidental music yes. that then winds that up. That's very popular. It's even parodied crazy. in the, uh, the Cable Guy, right? Yeah, the Jim Carrey Cable movie. Guy. Yeah. Um, Simpsons used it. Um, yeah. and, and specifically, just for anyone who doesn't know, speaking of his music for the um, uh, episode A Mock Time, it's basically a fight scene between Kirk yes. and Spock, but yes. uh, I'd have to like play a sample. Uh, but it's yeah, it, it's he he's a, he's got a wonderful legacy as far as the music that he provided. You know, I also love the stuff that he wrote for Mission Impossible and, and yes, Man from Uncle. Yes. Um, and I'm really glad that a lot of it is now being released. Yeah, you know, so people can discover what he did His back then. Sense of melody, there, there, uh, I, I like really catchy hooks. Um, yes, is is. Um, I don't want to say unprecedented, but it's just really impressive. I mean, it's just like he'll have just like a short cue. And he'll have a, a melodic, just you know, just a quick hook in there. But it's like um, it's indelible. Like all of a sudden, it's just then it's an earworm in your brain. Right, and also his music can get very complex rhythmically. Yeah. Um, as a project in class, uh, we conducted one of his pieces from *The Mystic Warrior*, which is a, oh, I think, right. a, a TV miniseries. Yeah, I remember about. And that. it was rhythmically very complex, changing meters, uh, fast tempo. Not easy to conduct and not easy to perform, which is why we did it in class. Wow. <laughs> to study it. Um, but it's just really great writing, really great writing. So, and you learned, obviously, you, this, he was one of your, uh, your, your professors, your teachers at UCLA. Yes, one of my teachers at UCLA. I kept in contact with him after UCLA. Um, and we just emailed back and forth sometimes. And um, I, I got a commission to write a concert piece, which I sent to him for review in his notes. And he was kind enough to give me his comments wow. uh, and his support and encouragement. And that was just wonderful to have. That's amazing. Yeah. So from there, it's just a matter of like uh, like anyone in, in this town that's freelance is you're just having to constantly 
work, uh, work, right? Yes, and work and, and, and working. Exactly, <laughs> work and working, making contacts, networking, that sort of thing. But uh, I was lucky because as an international student, um, I don't know if you or your listeners know this, but of course you're here with a student visa. And then after you finish your studies, you're allowed to stay in the United States for one year. Um, and you're allowed to work in any profession you like. You're encouraged to work in the profession that you studied for, <laughs> mm. but it's not a requirement. And I used that time to just score tons of short films. Um, throughout the years, I think I've scored more than 50 short films. And like a, a fellow composer called me like the king of short films. <laughs> but that was because I, I just, you know, there was nothing else I could score at the time or had access to. You know, these were student yeah. short film projects that I scored at UCLA, USC, and AFI. And like I would go and put an ad on their wall, literally, um, you know, with a picture of me conducting or something and, and saying, you know, hey, I'm available to score your short. And so that's how I got my first projects and made some good connections. Um, and I would say the, the most important moment in that chapter of my career, if you want to call that, was a short film called Wrong Hollywood Number. And it was directed by Jose Antonio Danner, whom I met at a writing class at UCLA Extension, because I also studied screenwriting there, because I wanted to learn about story structure, because it was so interconnected with the way we have to structure music as That's composers. Yeah. And so we, we hit it off. We, we had a good friendship, and he actually stayed at my place for a while. Um, and we watched a lot of movies together. And eventually, he said this was after 9-11. So we're talking like, uh, you know, early 2002. He said, you know, like everything seems so depressed right now. You know, the, the, the mood in the country. You know, I go to these short film festivals and these indie festivals and they all seem to be about, you know, drug addicted people who are suicidal. And um, mm -hmm. what he, he wanted to do sort of the antidote of that. And he did a very uplifting short film about a guy who comes to LA and who wants to become an actor and who, who runs into funny situations. And he wanted to have uh, an orchestral score. Uh, and at first I thought, okay. Um, no, no, and, no small feat. Yes, and, and initially he's like, well, do you know like enough musician friends of yours who could work on this for free? And I'm like, uh, I, I don't know if I could pull off an entire orchestra, <laughs> you know, on, on favors. So, uh, so he said, okay, then we'll have to pay for it. And he spent about two years working as a grip on movies, saving money, living in his car until he had the money for an orchestra. Wow. And um, at the time I connected with uh, contractor Andy Brown of the London Metropolitan Orchestra, um, just through emails. And uh, he, he came to LA to visit and have meetings at studios. He met, I think, with Chris Young and several other people. They had just worked on Bless the Child with Chris Young. And they were, uh, they were working with Edward Shermer. Um, and so he had meetings at you know, Sony, Disney, and then he had a meeting with me. And I don't know why, um, because I was a complete nobody. Um, but I, I will never forget his kindness. And we talked for about two hours. We had a very nice meeting. And he said, well, anytime anything comes across that's orchestral, you know, please contact me. And I did in the case of Wrong Hollywood Number. Um, and uh, of course, he gave us a budget that was that we could not meet, <laughs> but he was he was willing to work with us. Um, wow. And to the point where uh, Jose Antonio and I, when we went to London, stayed at his house wow. <laughs> in order to save on hotel costs. <laughs> um, and that's how we made it work. How many players did you wind up? Um, it was, I think, like a 40 piece orchestra, wow. 30 something or 40. Um, and uh, it, it was just a dream of a session. Um, wow. It was at um, Sony, also called Whitfield. And now I think it doesn't exist anymore. Huh. Uh, Mike Ross Trevor was the, the recording engineer, oh, nice. One, wonderful to work with. Um, and then so we had the recording, but we did not have the money to do the mix. Oh, no. <laughs> so we had these multi-track recordings and Pro Tools sessions. And um, at the time, of course, this is like shortly after 9-11. And uh, I was unable to get my visa renewed. So I was in wow. London, stuck, unable to go back to the United States. So I went to Austria instead, where, of course, I could go to because I am an Austrian. <laughs> and I decided, OK, while I wait for my visa, I'm going to work and try to save some money for the mix. So that's what I did. I worked at a post office for about two months. 
and got the money together for the mix. Wow. And uh, Jose Antonio at the time told me, okay, if you got your dream music scoring mixer for this, who would it be? And I said, Dennis Sands, you know, because I was familiar with his work from Alan Silvestri scores, Danny Elfman scores, Thomas Newman. Uh, and I said, you know, sort of the, the light comedy style that Silvestri is known for um, would be perfect for this score in terms of a, a right. mix. And so we contacted Dennis Sands. Uh, and to my amazement, um, he watched a, a VHS copy of the short film with uh, the monitor mixes, meaning, you know, just a DAT that had been recorded on the scoring stage. We just mixed that in with the dialogue and temporary sound effects. And Dennis watched it. And um, after about two weeks, I gave him a call and his wife picked up. And I'm like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm Edwin, just wanted to inquire about Wrong Hollywood Number. And she said, oh, you're Edwin. Uh, we watched your short film. It's cute. <laughs> and so I, that was like the first good sign that Dennis might say yes. And yeah. sure enough, he, he, uh, I later talked to him on the phone. He was very inquisitive about uh, size of the orchestra, size of the room, where it was recorded, what microphones were used, um, how many tracks and so forth. So I gave him all the information that I, I knew of, of the top of my head. I also told him the story about Jose Antonio sleeping in his car for two years. <laughs> it's got to endear him a little yes, bit. Yes, and, and sure enough, he said yes. And, wow. and while we were uh, mixing the score for Wrong Hollywood Number, it turns out that that was his, Dennis's very first short film project. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and also, um, like the, the, there was no money there, and Dennis worked for a small fraction of his usual fee, so there was no assistant. And so Dennis... Dennis did everything, you know, he was Pro Tools operator and mixer and, and everything. That's amazing. And it was just incredibly kind for him to do that. Um, but I do remember being kind of scared initially contacting him because it's freaking Dennis Sands. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's a big name in the industry. Uh, yes, but, but our hope was, you know, Jose Antonio's and my hope was that the quality of the work and our passion for the project might, might convince him. Yeah. And uh, lucky for us, it did. incredible I, I'm so happy that worked out yeah like that. so so that then became a calling card for me if you will yeah and that recording somehow ended up in uh, Paul Haslinger's lab um, Paul Haslinger is probably known to your listeners mostly for uh, his score for underworld movies and right. uh, also for uh, fear of the walking dead um, oh I didn't realize yeah that. which is huge right now yeah um, and uh, former Tangerine Dream member and so forth. So um, he's like a master of uh, electronic music and everything that has to do with sound manipulation, you know, processed percussion, that sort of thing. Um, and I learned a lot from him. You know, I, I did not think that my, you know, happy orchestral score <laughs> would resonate with his sensibilities, <laughs> but he listened to it and, and he emailed me and he said, you know, I, I hear true passion in that music. Um, and so he's like, do you want to meet for lunch? And I met with him. Little did I realize that that was sort of a job interview. Oh, wow. Um, and he asked me shortly thereafter if I wanted to contribute to Fear Factor. So Fear Factor in 2004, at, near the end of 2004, became my first professional gig hmm. um, here in Hollywood. Wow. And I, that's, I know that's also a big deal as far as providing music for the reality, the competition shows. Especially. Yes, yes. The, the, the job was very interesting because um, this was season five. So they already had four seasons worth of material that they mm. could use as library music. Um, and they had a very limited budget. So basically what they told Paul 
um, was, you know, like sometimes we, we use a piece of music that we like a bit too often and we've heard it too many times. So it's, it's like a perfect opportunity to use that as a temp for a new piece, but they wanted it to be uh, bigger and more cinematic and more exciting. So it was our job to, to do that and to deliver something that was exciting and felt fresh. Because um, you're so, competing against shows, I think. I think even yes. Amazing Race had some notable composers on yes, it, if I remember yes. correctly. Yeah, um, and it's a Bruckheimer production, and so I think, yeah, that's a lot to go as far as competing against that sound. Right. So um, you know, the I guess you and your listeners know the concept of the show. It's about these contestants who put themselves in sometimes embarrassing situations right. um, to make, I believe, fifty grand as, show as I a would prize. Think, yeah. Um, and, and you wonder, like, why do these people, you know, embarrass themselves, you know, on national television to do this? But the show is actually a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, some of the I really like some of the action stunts that they it, it was very inventive, just the settings and right. the, the gadgets that they used. Um, and of course, people remember the show for, for the gross out segment, which yeah. was like the second stunt of the show. Um, but even there, they um, they tried out new things. And so I, I was in the lucky place where. You know, the, the, the task was, you know, do something fresh for this. Try to reinvent the wheel. We're in seasons five, season six. You know, we need to do something interesting that feels fresh and cinematic. So, so I approached each sequence as though it was part of a, you know, $120 million blockbuster movie. Uh, and I tried to give it that sort of feel. Yeah. Um, while trying to also sound contemporary, which is something that Paul was very um, uh, encouraging about. Um, because... Um, as I mentioned before, my background is in classical music. Uh, I'm a former Vienna choir boy, you know, grew up with all this classical repertoire. So, uh, you know, and, and, and Paul sort of gently nudged me into, you know, hey, you should listen to more music that's currently hot right now. That's you know? interesting. Um, and familiarize myself with uh, that sort of musical vocabulary and use it, adapt it, so it works in the context of film music. I mean, it's not unlike, you know, I mean, this is still a decades old example, but, you know, if Elmer Bernstein is scoring something in the early 70s, um, mm-hmm. it still is his own stamp, but he's going, but he's going to be adding in funk or R&B into the orchestra at yes. that point, like yes. for McHugh or um, what's another one of his, a report to the, com- report, report to, to the, the commissioner, commissioner uh, which I remember listening to, and I've never heard of the movie and uh, mm-hmm. Red Saraband released that album and, and I was like, wow, this is, I can't stop listening to this uh, mm. because it's, but it's, it's that. It's incorporating, yeah, the current styles into what had been his established sound orchestrally, I guess. Yes, yes. And I guess composers have pretty much always done that. You yeah. Know? And, and the style of popular music changes. And sometimes we listen to some of this like 20 years later and it sounds very dated. But in other cases, it's surprisingly fresh sounding still today. It's funny. I, that term gets thrown out a lot. And sometimes I, I find myself recoiling against it because mm-hmm. when people talk about 80s synth or whatever, and, and some people will say it's dated, I'm like, you know, it, all it can be is what it is at the time. It's it, it's like it's it's kind of hard to like think at the time you know if I'm scoring this movie and it's 1985 and they want an electronic score I can't go hey hey this may not date well so I'm not gonna do this job or yes. I, I you know and, I don't know what you do at that point and also I don't quite understand how you could dismiss an entire score based on the instrument the, the, the datedness of like one snare drum sound that came from an right. old Yamaha keyboard or the you Simmons know? drums exactly yes. yeah so, I, I and I and I feel the same way about pop I think if 80s yeah. pop can still be popular and still yeah we when you listen to it you know it's an 80s pop band or sound doesn't dis, it doesn't I, I feel like it doesn't mean you dismiss it um so right. yeah that's yeah 
Um, as far as like those, the as your background being in classical, you know, was there a particular um, classical genre that you gravitated towards, whether it was Baroque or the classical era or post-romantic? Was there anything that you gravitated towards? Well, I shortly hinted at that uh, the fact that uh, I'm a former Vienna choir boy. So as as a Vienna choir boy, you are exposed to a lot of classical repertoire. And you have to sing a lot of it repeatedly, especially when you go on tour. You know, these tours at the time lasted for three to four months. And there were only two alternating programs, an A program and a B program. So you, you would perform the exact same piece of music like hundreds of times. And I realized that there were certain pieces that got old pretty quickly, at least to my ears. And then there were others that remained fresh no matter how many times we sang them. Hmm. So I, I tried to figure out what it was about those pieces. And, and I found out that it's, it's a combination of something that's familiar and something that's fresh, finding the right balance between the two. And I find this so many times in Jerry Goldsmith's music, for instance, or James Horner's music, where there's something that's instantly uh, relatable in terms of melody. Mm -hmm. But then there are other really unpredictable things going on, especially with Goldsmith in terms of rhythm, mixed meters or, yeah. or just odd things, odd sounds that come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, keeps the music fresh and interesting. Um, I agree. I, 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 it's something that, you know, I came to appreciate the older, the, the longer I was a collector and fan, you know. I think, you know, you go in and you have a few favorites and you know, specifically Jerry Goldsmith, and then you get more and more. It used to be when I started collecting, it was like I, I, I needed a sure thing. Mm -hmm. I was going to go to the record store and buy it. I'm like, I don't know what it's going to sound like. And I was like, if I bought every Horner score I bought, I pretty much liked. Yeah. But I would buy a Goldsmith and I'd be surprised. I'd be like, this doesn't sound like Star Trek The Motion Picture or it doesn't sound like, you know, um, uh, First Blood or something. But then you start to realize, well, one, that's his genius. Two, they're really, he does have, it's like his stamp is still in those works, even though Raggedy Man doesn't sound like uh, Outland, which doesn't sound like, um, you know, Runaway or something. It's, it's like, yes. but with the more that you dig into his style, you're like, I can still get that. I can still get him out of the music. Yes. And I think this leads to a very interesting point, And that is... Like the, the pieces that um, became old pretty quickly when I was a member of the Vienna Choir Boys were early Mozart pieces. And I guess the reason for that is that it was simply a melody with a simple accompaniment. Um, as opposed to, for instance, something like Schubert, where, you know, we have like uh, leader, you know, art songs, um, where the accompaniment almost takes on a life of its own. It not just, it, it's not just playing harmonies under a melody. It becomes its own character. And sometimes it provides narrative context to the melody, especially if you look at the words, what the words are saying, some of the words are being mimicked by the accompaniment. It's, it's incredible. It's an incredible learning experience to listen to Schubert songs. Um, to see what one can do with accompaniment. Wow. Um, and I, I hear the same qualities in James Horner, John Williams, um, Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, and so that, that's what I've been trying to do in my, in my own work as well, uh, partly to just keep it fresh to my own ears because you know most people just don't realize that. Um, but also, I guess, to, to give a certain level of sophistication to something that may not really require sophistication. Um, but may elevate the whole listening experience as a result. That's that's a tough thing about the job, which I know has come up is art versus commerce. Yes, you know, you this project needs music. How much art can you bring to it? I guess. Is... Yes, and and the job is always to make the client happy, and uh, you know we we definitely admire Goldsmith and Williams, but that kind of music is just no longer required. Um, which is kind of ironic because that's what made me want to become a film composer in the first yeah, place. It, so, yeah. um, but you know, I, I can't. I am able to find uh, satisfaction in doing something that I wouldn't necessarily buy as a listener, as mm -hmm. a soundtrack collector. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I sometimes find myself like I finish a project, everything is delivered, and you know, I, I might edit something together for a soundtrack album. So for the first time, I'm able to listen to it as an audience member would. Um, and not thinking about, oh, what needs to be changed? You know, what note do I still have to address? But it's all done and I listen to it. And I realized, well, I, I probably wouldn't buy this, you know, as a soundtrack collector. 
Um, that, that doesn't make me any less proud of the work. It's just, I guess, a matter, a matter of taste. And also the requirement uh, that for any composer really to, to be a musical chameleon and to make the client happy, to, to speak to the client's sensibilities and preferences in terms of what they like uh, in terms of music. I, I, I find it's, and then you're right, that it's, I, you know, it's, it's the personality I think that's missing from um, what's allowable in music and movies today um, is it used to be that if you sign John Barry to do your movie, you knew you're getting a score that sounded like John Barry. Yes. You wouldn't hear his music and go like, wait, 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 wait. Can you sound more like, you know, Lalo Schifrin? Yes. Like, I can't. I'm John Barry. Yes. Why did you hire me if you don't want me to sound like that? Yes. I guess there are still some composers who, who work in that sort of scenario, I guess one would be Carter Burwell or Thomas Newman, yeah. uh, Rachel Portman. You know, th these are composers that have a very recognizable style. Yeah, and like you would probably not hire Carter Burwell to work on you know the latest superhero blockbuster movie. And yet, at one point, he was going to score. I, I think know. the second Thor. He was attached movie? to the second Thor movie. Yeah, yes. which again, you're like, that's fantastic, and then yes. nothing came of that. And he has done some action movies, and he's done them really yeah. well. Um, but I guess the, the genre that he's best known for are, you know, independent drama movies. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, he's among the very best working in that field. Um, I think it's, I think, I feel like it's the point of view the composer brings that doesn't yes. seem as, as wanted. I, I feel like with a lot of movies today, they don't want a point, point of view because that might not, uh, there might be a portion of the audience that won't like it or they won't connect with it and they want the largest audience, which everybody does. I get it. But... You, you remove any sort of point of view or personality with the music or the director or whatever, and it becomes kind of generic. And that, that I, that's an unfortunate result, I think. Yes, well, I mean, and also I keep saying this, you know, you need to make the client happy as a yeah, composer. Yeah, you know, you, you yeah. can't think about the bigger picture <laughs> or how would audiences react because, you know, if, if a director gives you a note such as, you know, hey, change this one note, you know, change the pitch of this one note by a half step. Will it make any change in the bigger picture? Probably not. Will more people go and see the movie? Will people walk out of the movie theater if you don't change that one note? Probably not. But still, your focus needs to be to make the client happy. So what have been the projects that you've been happiest with the result as far as your as far as musically? Well, I've, I've been very lucky to, uh, you know, to not only write scores as Edwin Wendler um, for, for small independent movies and direct-to-video things, uh, but also to be involved uh, to a certain extent with some really big budget productions such as two X-Men movies, uh, two Liam Neeson thrillers. Um, and I, I've been very grateful for these experiences, especially the projects that I've been working with uh, with John Ottman, um, because John is just wonderful to work with. Um, he's he's very easygoing. He's all, he always seems to be in a good mood. Yeah, I met him a few times. He's and, really friendly, really and, great. And you know, you know, if if you work on something like uh, you know, twentieth century Fox released X Men movie, the pressure must be enormous, especially if you're also working on this same movie as the editor. <laughs> yeah, I, I cannot so, imagine his schedule when he's editing and yes. composing. So, so my work as an arranger for him has been has been really rewarding in that regard uh, because I, I do believe uh, I do trust John's musical instincts. He has great musical taste. Uh, you know, sometimes we would talk about musical references, and like he would say something like, "Oh, you know, this should sound like this one." action cue like Battle in the Mutara Nebula from Star Trek 2 and I instantly know what it is mm -hmm. and um, you have a so, shorthand yes it, it's just great to be working with another soundtrack geek yeah. you know, on, on film music um, so it's it's been very rewarding experience yeah Yeah, I can imagine being a cog in that machine. 
as mm -hmm. far as like the bigger budget films is its own unique animal versus working on um, the small the short films you yes know, and it's your it, mindset's different it, it is you know and and you have to compartmentalize you know when when you're a composer on, on a huge movie like that uh, such as John Ottman sometimes is it's 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 difficult to do everything yourself um, so you need to know exactly what to delegate to whom and to trust that person to do the right thing uh, another thing that I really love about working with John is that he never hovers there are never any friendly reminders saying, hey, have you done this? Have you done that? You know, like, what about this thing? Um, because he knows that everybody working on the team is busy and they, and they you know, they're, they're not going to, you know, be distracted binge watching on Netflix. <laughs> they're going to be very focused on their work. And, and he trusts the people who work for him to do that. And it's, um, the project still matters to you. Uh, you know exactly it's, it's, yes yeah. and, and everybody works at, at getting it right yeah and as I said making the client happy that's amazing um, Wow yeah I, I uh, it's I can I, the, the it's that mental shift I guess of being of, of it being your project a small you know like a, a short film where you're in total control versus you know working on a team like that yes yes but of course they inform each other I mean one of the great experiences you know as I said my first professional gig was working on fear factor uh, where Paul Haslinger was the composer in charge. And um, I also worked with him on a movie called Touristas. Um, oh, I remember. Which was a horror yeah. movie. I, I didn't see it. Yeah. I, I can't handle horror movies very well. It, yeah, it was actually <laughs> well-made horror movie to the point where I was thinking, you know, these visual effects look way too realistic to be fake. Like, I don't, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it was all special makeup, but it looked very convincing, I have to say. That sounds um, frightening. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it was well done. But anyway, so it, it was very interesting to watch Paul interact with his clients. Uh, for instance, we had a show and tell meeting um, and this particular movie, Touristas, uh, had a lot of producers on it. And there was a show and tell where there were, I think, 12 people, something like that, hmm. in Paul's studio. So they were sitting on the couch, on chairs, and I was there too, taking notes. And it was just very interesting to see how Paul navigated that room. And so it, I, th I think it's great for, for anybody who aspires to be working in film music to just to to absorb, you know, to be a fly on the wall, to see these interactions, to see how uh, a big composer in a big movie takes a phone call and how he communicates something to the client. If there's a problem, how they address that problem, how many solutions they have at their fingertip instantly. Right. Uh, and if there's no solution, then how they can instantly come up with something uh, on the fly uh, and, and constantly be productive and, and hopefully in a good mood. Um, to, to make it all happen. I remember there's one funny instance. I was working with Paul on this movie called Into the Blue, um, Jessica Alba, a Paul Walker movie. And uh, it, it was at the height of deadline craziness uh, when we were all kind of scrambling to get it all done. And I walked out of his house and, and Paul caught me doing that. Uh, and he's like, oh, are you leaving for like for good? And I'm like, no, I just need to get go to my car because I left something in there. It was a phone charger or something. And Paul is like, well, if you left for good, I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> but I did come back and, and, and it all got done. But also this led to a sort of a scary experience because I had like I had not slept in like two weeks. And uh, there were, uh, I think, three days of scoring sessions at Todd A.O., and after that, um, I chose to drive home, which was a big mistake. Wow. Because, you know, if you're that fatigued and you're behind a wheel, that's not a good place to be. So I learned that lesson. I, the only way I was able to make it was, you know, by listening to loud radio. Um, you know, chewing gum helps. And at, at some points I was even screaming to myself. Hopefully it wasn't which a long which drive. Which sounds completely ridiculous, but that was the only way I could stay awake. Wow. Now I know better, you know, if something like that happens, I just rent a hotel room for one night, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, and it was a long drive. Yeah. So and it, it can be not brutal. a good idea. It can be brutal here. <laughs> Although I feel like, you know, it's, even at three in the morning sometimes you're like, why is there traffic yeah. on the 405? What yeah. are they doing? <laughs> well, you know, as far as like... Um, you know, just talking about coming from the as being a fan. I mean, do you still find yourself, um, you know, uh, collecting? And do you still find yourself like you know buying soundtracks? And and do you how, how and this is just sort of fan to fan, I guess. Yes. <laughs> how how has you how have you as a fan changed now that you're actually in it 
working in it well yes i still buy soundtracks on cd you know i, I realize i'm i'm in a shrinking minority there but uh i mean also um uh, peter my my partner and fiance and i we live close to amoeba music which is very tempting you know it's one uh, of completely. the few places in la that has an extensive uh, collection of soundtracks and so but every time we go there and we look through these cds there's something that we've never heard of before like you know some <laughs> some old george fenton score some cd that i didn't even know existed or some old richard band score that i never right. knew was released by entrada way back when they had you know all these limited limited releases um so that's very exciting um there's still discoveries absolutely yeah. yes and and also you know call me old-fashioned but i do like reading the liner notes i do enjoy being able to see all the credits without having to you know hope that there's a digital booklet somewhere <laughs> Um, you know, because when you buy a CD, it's pretty consistently there. You know, you, you, if there's a great guitar solo, most likely you'll be able to see who played that. Yeah. Um, whereas you can't do that if it's streaming. Yeah, I know. It's 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 a bummer. I, I, I do think there will still always be a market for it. Maybe mm -hmm. the format will change as far as maybe whatever's after CD, there'll be something else. Yeah. But then I, it's that having the, the liner notes and um, that, that really makes a difference. And also autographs. You know, you, you can't oh, ask yeah. Thomas Newman to sign a streaming version <laughs> of Passengers, you know, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I don't even know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can I print out my receipt for purchasing it and then have him sign that? <laughs> um, well, it, it's interesting because I, I, I wonder in terms of you and John Ottman and um, even Brian Tyler and some of these, this the, the, the generation of, of composers working now were influenced from you know, the guys that we liked, you know, when we were younger. And it's interesting having them write music now, because I kind of feel like the guys that we, the composers we liked, um, and feel free to correct me, but like, you know, their influences were outside of film as far as like Goldsmith or Bernstein or Alex North, it's like, or Alfred Newman. It's like these guys who invented it as far as being ground zero for this stuff, their influences were outside of it. And mm -hmm. now the influences are inside it as you're writing for it. Yes, and I would also say that the uh, that the influences have vastly expanded. Like, uh, for instance, uh, you know, when Eric Wolfgang Korngold was hired to score a movie, his influences were classical music. You know, the, all the greats in classical music and Romantic period music, and his teachers. Um, but now, you know, our influences span the globe and and time periods. Yeah, I guess um, I shouldn't. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Really broadening that in yes, the, the, the spectrum of influences. And, and again, not... making the client happy. Um, it uh, you know sometimes you just have to emulate what's in the temp, and if that's music you don't particularly like, yeah, then you better learn to like it. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or have somebody else do the work. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I, the temp music thing is a whole other, a whole other conversation because yeah. I, I definitely talked to many, many composers of you know uh, about it and read about oh, it for and, years. And composers love talking about temp music. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that stunned me that I recently uh, learned from the latest roundtable discussion on, I think, the Hollywood Reporter. Yeah. Was that uh, Michael Giacchino does not listen to temps. Yeah, I remember reading that as well. I'm, I'm really surprised by that because it, it happens, at least to me, many times that uh, a client will say, you know what, in this scene, it just works. Like the temp totally works. You know, test screening after test screening, they, they give this scene the highest ratings. And we believe that that's in part because of the music. So whatever you do, stick super close to the temp. And if I then don't listen to a temp, I may be fired. <laughs> I'm glad that that's not the case for Michael Giacchino. I, and maybe it's just he's at the point where he has a safety net, where yeah, people yeah. aren't going to doubt him. I mean, and his career trajectory went from zero to 60. I mean, in, in no time yes, flat. Yes. Which and, and uh, you know, I, th I think I also read in that same interview that eventually he does listen to the tent. But yeah. in, initially he doesn't, meaning he comes to this scene uh, with with just with fresh uh, sensibilities and no preconceived notions about yeah. what what the music should do here, and then sometimes he may be surprised by the temp that they were going into a completely different direction, and then he may have to make adjustments. I yeah. think the the positive spin that I've heard from different composers is at least a conversation starter because if you're talking to a director who doesn't, then it's not they're not required to be musicians, but if they can tell you I like the tempo 
or I just like the instrumentation. If they can be specific, what about the temp do you like? Is yes. it that it's strings? Do you like, you know, just something about it to start a conversation? That seems to be the positive. Yes, that, that helps. And I, th I think that um, probably the best kind of temp that a composer uh, can deal with is the kind of temp that's just good enough to get a message across, yeah. but not super great so that everybody falls in love with it. <laughs> it's, that, it's that sweet spot that uh, you, you hope as a composer the temp will hit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just to, just to kind of wrap up uh, our time here today, um, I wanted to, to uh, thank you again very much, Edwin, for making time for this. Thank you. Today. It's I, been I, really enjoyable. I think it's been great to talk. Um, is where can uh, if anyone wants to find you either on social media or you know out there in the world you know where where can they look for your look for you out there? I'm easy to find uh, on the web on social media. I I will accept your friend request on Facebook. <laughs> Just look up Edwin Wendler. I also have a website that's probably the best point uh, of the best starting point if you want to look for some of my music because it has a page about what has been released and on what label it has been released. So, and it also has tons of music samples to listen to for free. Oh, fantastic. Excellent. Cool. Uh, well, thank you very much again. I appreciate all your thank time. Thank you so day. much, Brian. I really enjoyed this. Thanks. <laughs>